0: financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates LLC, a registered investment advisor.
1: This is the retirement and IRA show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as Certified Financial Planner Jim Saulnier, as well as Colorado State University Finance Instructor and Certified Financial Planner Chris Stein teach you about IRAs, 401Ks, annuities, Social Security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim com, And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now, here's Jim and Chris with today's show.
2: Well, welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition for this week. We've got a uh, new topic today, is what I understand. This uh, topic today... Um, prompted by a listener email. So, uh, prompted a much deeper conversation than just a question to be answered on our Q and a show. So, uh, Jim has his hands on such an email and rumor has it that it involves the buffered products or buffered ETFs that we've discussed in the past. Um, and actually they're not necessarily ETFs by the way, but, uh, so I guess the buffered product is a better description of it because it can come in various forms. And um, he felt, uh, Jim felt that it was a good enough question that uh, we could bring it on the EDU show, and hopefully many of you uh, others find it interesting as well. Is that my cue? That's your cue today.
3: Excellent, excellent. Chris and I have been talking literally, I think, all day so far.
2: It's gotten a little tedious, actually.
3: It has. It has. I, I, I must admit that. I'm uh, getting a little sick of hearing your damn voice. <laughs> this is Tuesday, folks. And Tuesday, we plan as a team here at the firm. I think longtime listeners know that. Um, no one individual advisor generally makes a specific recommendation to the client, unless it's someone like Chris or I, and we kind of certain of our answer. But other than that, we all plan as a team. So we have been in team meetings literally all day, and now it's about 3.15 on Tuesday. I haven't even eaten lunch yet. I tried to eat a soup, but I didn't Uh-oh. get it all finished. Did you eat lunch?
2: Are you set? No.
3: You did eat lunch but either? Are you okay, setting so us this up for so
2: uh, crazy talk? Like,
3: Well, no, I can blame it on crazy talk. I have <laughs> hunger pains now. My, my brain was not well-fed today. <laughs> so I had a banana for breakfast but uh half a can of very lousy tasting i like homemade soups i make my own soups i had a can of progresso i mean it's okay in a pinch but it's no way near a homemade soup and uh, it is a kind of chilly snowish day today very minimal snow from colorado standards but it was definitely a soup day not a salad day so i tried to eat couldn't folks and i've been chatting with chris literally i think for the past six hours so this will make seven and I think he and I will be for a, a well-deserved break from hearing each other's voice for a couple of days at least uh, as we, we go forward. But welcome to the EDU show where we kind of dive deep in. And this question when it came in, uh, I, when I first read it, I thought, oh God, I can do a lot of EDU shows on this. But I think we're gonna limit it to two. And it's not just going to be about buffered products. Because he also talks about fixed indexed annuities. He also talks about where do you use these things in a retirement plan. So he captures the essence of a lot of things that I want to make sure listeners understand. uh, Because it has to do with retirement planning. And everyone is different. Everyone listening to my voice right now, we all have different voices. We all look different, talk different, act different. Your retirements are all different. So what might work for someone may not work for you with any product, whether it's an investment product, an insurance product, a banking product, doesn't matter. Any product that you may be using to help fund your retirement or help ease your retirement, the the spending in your retirement, help ease the spending in your retirement, any product that you may use may be appropriate for you and not for someone else. Don't try to contort your situation to have one of these products fit or work because it sounds cool or it sounds like the new kid on the block and you want to just oh, wow that thing sounds pretty cool i want to put one of those in my portfolio so i do want to begin with that and because we are talking investments folks um, well let, let chris chime in let him get his voice in here because we're talking about investment folks, uh, chris What do we want everyone to also realize on these next two shows that we're going to be doing?
2: Well, what we're talking about here is really just educational because I think these products are not something that's well known by folks. And I think the best thing to be able to watch out for your own financial situation is to understand what's out there and and maybe even what you have that maybe someone quote sold you at some point in the past. So uh, by us you know covering this and educating people on it, we're not trying to say everyone should be running out and getting one of these things. Um, you know, even in our firm, when we do use them, which is um, not uh, all the time, certainly. Uh, it's in a very specific case, uh, or a couple specific niches that they they kind of satisfy as part of our particular process. So uh, just always remember that this is just this isn't a promotion, certainly of these products. It's just a hey, these things are out there. They're kind of confusing, uh, fairly new, and uh, you know this is uh, uh, kind of what they're all about. And you know as you investigate what's appropriate for you, maybe. Uh, This education will help you in that assessment.
3: Exactly. We are not making a recommendation to buy and sell any investment or any insurance product for that matter, because this gentleman in his question, as you'll hear in a minute, ties fixed indexed annuities into this discussion. So we're not making any specific recommendations to buy, to sell, to hold. We're just saying, here is some education. Here's how we see these being used. Here's how we have used them at our firm. You decide on your own. We're gonna make every effort to talk about the pros and the cons of of everything that we chat about. But before I even read his email and before I would even jump into telling people, there's, there's something all through my career when people would want to chat with me about investments and it's one of the reasons why my firm has never led with asset management we have always led with financial planning because i believe passionately in a simple saying i don't even know anymore if it's a saying that i came up with or if i heard it somewhere but for decades i've been doing this for 24 years for at least two decades i have been saying how can i or any Financial advisor tell you what to do with your money until I first know what your money has to do for you. I think I came up with that, but I have no idea and and if I didn't, kudos to whoever did
2: yeah, up uh, too to your credit, this particular one, when you first mentioned it to me years ago, you didn't um divulge that it came from someone else, and I've always understood it to be a creation of your own, so uh could
3: i i think it is i mean it's yeah. something that i would say but i don't want to take credit for coming up with someone if someone right. else came up <laughs> right. with it but yeah. it always rubbed me the wrong way i've shared with people and this all ties into where i'm going folks so bear with me i shared with you how i came up with my approach to retirement planning and and the the whole uh X-rated, not X-rated, R-rated, God, (laughs) X-rated, R-rated hypnotist. I was going to say, the
2: story just took another turn.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The story just got real interesting now on that hypnotist. Uh, He was an R-rated hypnotist, folks. But I shared with you how I question everything and how Frank Santos, the hypnotist at the time, got me to understand that. And that's never changed. And when I got into this as a career and... It was all about sales and it still is to a degree about sales. Oh, it irked the hell out of me when I would be questioned by the office manager. And then the OSJ, when you had to show who you met with, what happened, what did you quote unquote produce, what assets are coming into the firm. This is for the short few years, folks, that I worked as a broker. I hated it. And It hated it because how could I take someone's money, move move someone's money from investments to, to me if I don't know what their investments have to do for them first? And I've never lost sight of that. So when we get into this question, I'm going to break it into two parts. The first part today is I want to try to explain... Where you would use any type of buffered product, whether it is going to be a buffered exchange traded fund, a buffered unit investment trust, a buffered structured note, which I have never talked about on this show, or a fixed indexed annuity, which we have talked about on this show, but which is a buffered product. And they've been around for a very long time. The brokerage industry started offering the brokerage versions of what fixed indexed annuities have been doing, I'd say over the past decade, maybe 12 years or so, some longer, some companies much less, but it's growing in popularity and you're starting to see more and more of them. And because of a perfect storm of higher interest rates and higher stock market volatility, you're starting to see cap rates or the amount of appreciation you can enjoy. They're called cap rates. Listen to this two shows we'll do. It'll all make sense to you. Cap rates are getting at very reasonably high and attractive levels. Years ago, I knew about these products years ago, three, four, five, six years ago, we weren't using them. The cap rates, the amount of growth you might be able to earn wasn't, in my opinion, significant enough to make me excited to use them. But right now, they are a compelling option. Same thing with fixed indexed annuities. I had used almost fixed index annuities almost exclusively for a buffered style product, recognizing their limitations and what I didn't like about them, But I stopped using them when they too suffered from very modest to low upside potential. It just wasn't worth using after a certain period of time. That has changed. Uh, Fixed index annuities have much higher uh, rates of potential appreciation than they did just two, three, four years ago. Doesn't mean we feel you should go out and buy one, whether it's a fixed-end annuity or a buffered product, but it's something you might want to consider. So let me read his email and then let Chris and I share with you where we tend to favor the structure of these products and why. And then next week, we'll get in deeper into his actual question, which you'll see here. Okay, so he begins. Jim. On several recent podcasts, you mentioned buffered exchange-traded funds or something like that. One time, you even spent a few minutes on the subject and gave a very quick explanation of what they are and how they work. It sounds to me like there might be some scenarios where they could be appropriate. And it also sounds to me you may be using them for some of the people you work with for a portion of their more cash-like holdings. So let me pause there. I think Chris, so far, he pretty much got a good understanding. Yes, there are some instances where we use these in very, uh, how did you word it, Chris? Niche areas, unique areas. I forget how you worded it. But there are some very unique areas, generally two areas in our firm, where if we are managing assets for a client we tend to look at these types of buffered products doesn't mean we're going to recommend them to everyone doesn't mean you should run out and get them but we definitely will look at them as an option so i think he so far has has picked up fairly well anything Mm -hmm. you want to add so far
2: no so far it looks like he's been paying attention to what we talked about yeah Mm -hmm.
3: So he goes on, so I tried to do what you said, and I looked them up myself, which is true, folks. Do not rely on these next two podcasts and run out and purchase one of these products, whether it's a buffered product or a fixed index annuity. If you do, you're crazy. Do your own research. Look at the pros, look at the cons, figure out if they'll fit for you. Okay, so I tried to look into them myself. And they sounded a lot to me like something else I found a fixed indexed annuity. As I read about them, I'm not sure why someone would choose one of them over a fixed indexed annuity. Perhaps you could do an EDU show. Listeners are going to get two shows. Perhaps you could do an EDU show on buffered assets in general so I can understand the benefits they offer, when and where they would be appropriate for me to use, and perhaps how they compare or don't compare to indexed annuities. So I liked that question, Chris, and I thought Mm -hmm. I could do one, maybe two, and definitely two, I could do more, but we'll try to limit it to two EDU shows. So let's focus folks On the first part of his question, when and where they are appropriate and the benefits they offer. And then on next week's podcast, we will look at comparing a brokered buffered product, say the ETF or the UIT, against the insurance version of a buffered product which is a fixed indexed annuity. And then there's other types of annuities, Ryla's registered index linked annuities. Maybe I'll have to drag them into next week's conversation as well, even though he didn't ask about them. They are also a buffered product that are offered on the variable annuity side as opposed to just the fixed annuity side. I'll get deeper into that probably next week. But uh, for this week, I just want to kind of run through with you listeners and new listeners. If if you're a little unfamiliar with what we're talking about, listen to some older podcasts. Because Chris and I are going to get a a bit into minimum dignity floor, delay period, and go-go spending. Because we want to kind of lay out to you how we view them and where we view not using them. I said on the previous shows, I don't think. The benefit of downside volatility protection at the cost of some upside appreciation is worth it for people who are still in the accumulation phase of retirement planning. They may be worth an accumulation investor to use if they're saving for something four, five, six years from now, and they're afraid to be fully invested in the market. Mm-hmm. But if there's somebody in their 20s, 30s, and 40s who is saving specifically for retirement, and retirement for them is 40, 30, 20, or 10 years away, I personally don't think they're appropriate for that. So keep everything in context. Just because you might like the way some of these sound doesn't mean they may be appropriate for you. I I personally think in the accumulation phase, market volatility is a buying opportunity for people, not something to shield yourself from, but something you should participate in with buying when good investments are down. So I do want to add that bit of clarity. Anything you want to add before we jump into a little of, of what we mean by the MDF delay period and go-go period where we kind of see these being used. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, no, that, I think that's a pretty good setup. And it's. I'm glad we're going to attack this in two shows because I don't think we could cram everything into one.
3: No, not especially if I involve Rylas, uh, which are uh, even a newer annuity than fixed indexed annuities um, and uh, buffered products. But anyways, we'll. I'll probably do that next week. All righty. So let's get into, uh, as he said... Understand the benefits and when and where they're appropriate. So let's talk about the benefit first or what they're intended for, their intended investment purpose, which ostensibly is the quote-unquote benefit of them. Because once you understand what they're trying to do, you can understand where in a retirement distribution portfolio they fit in. Okay. So what do these products intend to do? Whether you're looking at a buffered exchange-traded fund, a buffered unit investment trust, or a fixed-indexed annuity, which uses the similar option trading strategies, all three of those products are designed to limit your downside loss in a particular investment tied to a reference asset. And let me change my word investment to product because a fixed indexed annuity is not an investment. It is an insurance contract. So I got to be careful, Chris, or or I'm going to try my best not to conflate the two. A fixed indexed annuity is an insurance product, you, your money is never invested right there is no risk of principal loss a buffered ETF or a buffered Uit is an investment even though it employs trading strategies similar to the insurance product it is a legitimate investment and it's subject to all the disclosures and the the mm-hmm. um, prospectuses and uh, offer documents yeah. that any investment regulated by the 1940 Act are going to be subject to. Yeah, which is a key to, difference
2: because there's no entity yes. guaranteeing the principal on one of these buffered products. Whereas there is an an entity, the insurance company, that with the right annuity will guarantee, will make a promise to you to protect your principal.
3: Exactly. So one is an insurance product sold under a contract. The other two are investment products sold under a prospectus and regulated by the 1940 Investment Advisors Act. So keep that in mind, folks. Okay. So what is the intent of either product? The brokered buffered or the insurance product? The intent is to tie your investment to a reference asset. The most common reference asset is the Standard & Poor's 500. However, many buffered products on both sides of the aisle, the insurance side or the brokerage side, offer indexes or reference assets is the technical term, offer reference assets beyond the S&P 500s. You can find them tied to the NASDAQ. You can find them tied to the Dow. You can find them tied to the price change of gold. You can find a change uh, to real estate, uh, some foreign indexes like the Morgan Stanley Fire East Asia Index. You can find them with a lot of different reference assets. But for the sake of our conversation over the next two shows, let's Chris just limit it to the S&P. Because everybody kind of listening to this show, you've at least heard of the S&P 500. You might not have heard of the Russell 2000, but you should have heard of the S&P. But many, many, many of our listeners who are do-it-yourself investors understand the S&P 500. They know it it is a uh, growth index tied to, generally speaking, large cap U.S. growth stocks. Uh, It is not an equal weight indexed, so you have some of the biggest companies. I think right now it's Apple and Microsoft represent 13% of the index or something like that uh, I recently read. So, uh, of course, there are indexes you can get that are equal weighted where all 500 companies are owned equally, uh, but the S&P 500 is definitely not an equal weighted index. So keep that in mind. Anyways. We're gonna use S&P 500 as our reference asset for the next two days. So what are the product providers trying to do? They're trying to say to you, look, through the structure of our insurance product or through the structure of our investment product, we want to give you exposure to the Standard & Poor's 500 without all of the downside risk, but in exchange for removing or buffering out some of the downside risk in the standard and poors 500, you must give up some of the upside potential in the standard and Poors 500 during the holding period of the crediting strategy. What does that all mean in English? The holding period is usually 12 months with respect to the buffered ETF. It's usually 15 months with respect to the unit investment trust. You can find unit investment trusts and ETFs that have longer holding periods. I just came across a unit investment trust today, Chris, early in the morning um, from a company who's reaching out to me with their product to to examine, but it has a 26-month holding period tied to the S&P 500. So again, you can find different holding periods, listeners. On the insurance side, it's very similar. Most holding periods for the crediting strategy of how long you have to wait to see if you're going to earn anything or not is 12 months. It can be longer, though. I have seen some annuities with a holding period of two years. And I have seen some annuities get ready for this one, folks, with a six-year hold. Tied to the reference asset. They, and excuse me, many fixed indexed annuities offer, Chris, several different holding periods you can choose. What does the holding period mean? Or the the, the time period, however you want to word it. What does it mean? It's the period of time that you have to hold this product. You have to hold it from day one to the last day. To get it to work exactly as the managers are trying to get it to work. So you would hold it for that period of time. And if your reference asset is up, in this case, the Standard and impose 500. If the S&P is up during the, let's call it a 12-month hold, during a 12-month period, you have the potential to earn up to the cap that is fully disclosed to you at the start of day one. If the product is, excuse me, if the reference asset is down during the holding period, you are insulated from that loss up to the buffered amount. So if you bought a 20% buffer on the downside, that particular buffer on the brokerage side would only protect you if the reference asset, in this case the S&P 500, is down less than 20. So if the market is down 5, 10, 15, 18, 19, the product is designed that you will not incur that loss. But if the loss exceeds 20, because your buffer is only 20, So it's a 21, a 28, a 27, a 30% loss in the S&P. You would be down whatever the S&P is down minus the 20% buffer. So if the S&P is down 28, you would subtract out the 20% buffer. You will be down if you held it to the last day. You got to hold it for the full holding period you would be down only eight percent in my example. So both products work similar. We'll get into the nuance difference next week. What they're trying to do is give you downside protection because you can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to give up some of the upside. You can't just have protection on the downs. Be great, Chris. You got to protection on the downside, and all of the return of the market. That would be nirvana.
2: That's called magic.
3: (laughs) It's not going to work, folks. In the real world, you know that. So we'll get into some specifics, but I'm just trying to get you to understand. He's saying, what are the benefits they offer? Well, the main benefit they offer And what they strive to show that they're going to be able to deliver is some sort of downside protection. That's the aim. Nobody comes to you and says, oh, my God, I just bought this wonderful investment or I just invested in this wonderful insurance, but not invest. I just put money in a wonderful insurance product and they're only going to give me X percent of the return of the market. Isn't that a wonderful thing? People would look at you and say, what the hell you want to buy something that's not going to give you the whole return for? So they're not offering and saying the benefit of these products is the reduced return potential. The benefit of these products is the downside. And don't lose sight of that. That's what you should be looking for. If you are not looking For downside protection. Don't buy the annuity product. Or the broker product. They are not saying. That's what sets them apart. That is not the oomph. You are buying. That's not the aim. The aim is you need or want. Limited volatility. But you don't feel like having. Full principal protection. You don't want to put the money in the bank and get whatever the banks are paying. You want to try to get a better growth potential than a bank, but you are primarily looking for downside protection, not necessarily upside growth. Do you think I explained that okay, or do you need yeah, to I think add so. clarity no, I think, anywhere? I,
2: I think that was—I think that was pretty clean for someone who hadn't had
3: lunch. <laughs> So the main benefit is that. Then he asks, where do you kind of fit them in and use them? Why don't you kind of take over this, Chris, and talk? At our firm, there are two very unique spots where we look at these types of products. It does not mean we're going to use them, but it means we will look at them. There can be some unique anomalies where clients come to us with one-off situations where these products might work. I don't really want to get into that. Maybe I will next week if we have time. But generally speaking, there are two time periods in our office where we look at these. Why don't you, as the planner, Chris, and the, the, the head of the planning team, begin to look at or explain to people, What are you doing behind the scenes? Because remember, folks, how can I tell you what to do with your money until I know what your money has to do for you? Before we invest money for a client, unless they're a new investment management client and they're waiting for Chris to work his magic and they bring their assets over to us and people don't have to. If you're a new listener, we do not have to manage client assets to get our retirement plan. We price them separate. We keep a Chinese wall almost between them in the sense. We never mandate, oh, you got to bring your money over and let us charge you an AUM fee and then I'll give you this financial plan. That's BS. We don't do that. You want your retirement plan? We give you a retirement plan. We give you a fixed cost. Here's what it'll be. Asset management, we call our asset management services folks convenience portfolios. Y'all are do-it-yourselfers. You're listening. You can manage your own money, but it's going to come a time in your life where you may not want to. And that's where we come in. And there are people who sometimes work with us and say, hey, can you help me with my assets now? And they want a plan, but as longtime listeners know, we've been closed to new plans for quite some time. So we can work with those people to a degree, but we always tell them, once your plan is done, once your plan is done, we're going to get some more specific numbers from Chris and his team, and we are going to rework what we put in place for you. So, Chris, what are you doing, and what calculations are you doing, and which ones, the two in particular, do you feed to us that we on the investment side are saying, ooh, these could be potential buffered numbers?
2: Well, I'd say in a nutshell, what uh, the information that we're looking for out of a retirement projection is a timeline of needs. Essentially, trying to figure out what you're talking about, Jim. What does the money need to do for you? Well, you need this at this time. Looks like you're going to need some of that at that time. Uh, this is a lifetime need every single year. You know, growing with inflation is is a type of need. So it's really a timeline of all these different needs, and then if it's a need that um, um, you know happens at a specific time, that leads us naturally into talking about how to position or place monies to satisfy that need. Now, that might be way too, like, 30,000-foot view for some people, but that's... Kind of essentially what, what we're doing the projection for is to identify these needs when they're going to happen. Because in our view, uh, when you need the money and for what purpose, those are the two main variables that determine the appropriate place to put the money. If it is soon, you have no real risk capacity. If it's real long from now, um, you have a lot of risk capacity. If it's for something uh, less important than others. <laughs> we'll call it discretionary or, or uh, you know, a, a like-to-do but different than I need to put food on the table. Uh, that's where we determine kind of what it's needed for that can have an influence on this as well. You're not going to treat maybe dollars for fun in 10 years the same as you would dollars for minimum dignity floor in 10 years. So that's what I mean by when is the money needed and for what purpose sometimes the timing and the need coincide where it makes sense to have money that has some upside potential, but is for something important enough or near term enough that we need to buffer the downside. We need to uh, reduce the chance that the rug could be pulled out from under us. It's not something necessarily appropriate to just put money in the bank, right? Where you've got downside protection there, but you really have no reasonable upside potential. Uh, and that's where other alternatives come in. So it's just another kind of combination of the when do you need it and how worried are you about the downside that can guide. And then there's also another little twist I'll throw in there that sometimes the numbers tell us one thing, but your, the client's emotions Tell us something else sometimes it 's appropriate to place money in a way that has downside protection so that people feel more comfortable spending their own money, and they 're not worried about so much of the downside when they can look at something and and say okay i 'm comfortable with this it's not it 's not purely downside uh, you know eliminated it 's not principle protected is what we would call that. But I'm okay. As long as you give me some insulation here, I'm not going to emotionally react so much that it derails my intentions during that critical go-go period. So that I talked a little longer than I intended, but I think that tells the story of kind of what the retirement projection does to feed into what might lead uh, Jim and the investment team to uh, start talking about these things.
3: Right. So... What Chris is saying, and what what he did aptly describe, but what I want people to think of again, and I think one of the, I think we've done a lot of good podcasts, but one that I really think we should probably do again, is the show called The Opposite, where I referenced mm-hmm. a, a, a famous Seinfeld episode where George did the opposite of everything and just wonderful things happened to him. but. It was unique in the sense, and why we called it the opposite show, is we wanted to point out to everyone, in retirement, your financial life is literally the opposite of your entire accumulation years. The gosh-on opposite. If you can still find that show, I don't know if that show might have been long enough now where it's no longer on iTunes, Chris. Um, If you can find it, I definitely would listen to it. Uh, If you can't, we should probably do that show again uh, or a similar show to it. So where am I going with this? Most investment advisors in an accumulation portfolio, they're just going to ask you, what is your risk tolerance? They may even give you a risk tolerance questionnaire. And there's several companies out there that purport to be the best risk tolerance questionnaires. Uh, A lot of them now uh, give risk numbers and they're going to tell you what your personal number is and the number of your portfolio and do these numbers match. And that's all wonderful during the accumulation phase. I, I still don't understand why anyone in the accumulation phase should even have a risk tolerance. You, If you're 40 years from needing your money and it's specifically retirement dollars only, we're talking you should just invest in a very aggressive manner and very sound, well-diversified, aggressive investments and just let the markets do what they do over long periods of time. But that mentality of a one big portfolio with an investment allocation that matches your risk tolerance and your time to, to when it's needed and maintaining a certain percentage of cash stocks and bonds and all that kind of stuff, that goes out the window. And when you're retired, it's no more about, gee, I want to maintain a 60-40 or 80-20 or a 70-30. We, to this day, still have clients who have a hard time giving that notion up because it's what guided them for 20, 30, 40 years. But in retirement, it's different. And one of the things that are different to me in retirement is your portfolio should no longer be viewed as one big portfolio because it's really deferred spending. And those dollars are intended to be spent. I know there's this notion in the industry, Chris, that you shouldn't spend from principal at all. You should only spend from earnings and that's wrong. I don't, especially with low interest rates the way they've been over the past decade. Well,
2: uh, what that's doing is making a viable retirement plan only achievable by the ultra wealthy that have so many assets that they never have to touch the principal and still have an enjoyable retirement. Most of us are not in that position and won't likely be in that position, but we're somewhere in the middle. We have enough money to retire and do things. But we're going to have to actually use some of the money that we've accumulated to do that. We can't just live off of and enjoy the earnings only.
3: Yeah, The intent is to use it all for its stated purpose. (laughs) And that's what we try to do with the approach and where these buffered products fit in, folks. I'm I'm leading to something here. So you have that big portfolio. We listen to our recent shows on the fun number so you have this big portfolio we're going to help you or at least or you help yourself if you're do it yourselfer you don't have to work with us you should start to look into that portfolio and identify the spending needs that those assets are geared for and if you listen to our fun numbers show the very notion of creating a see-through portfolio which is done through what I call positioning, which is breaking your portfolio into different positions. The position is a noun. It's a part of your portfolio. Positioning is the actual act of breaking your portfolio into different positions earmarked for their stated spending. Each position needs to be invested appropriately. And you should know, in my opinion, my humble opinion, people can disagree and have other approaches to retirement, but you do not look at your portfolio as one big 60, 40, 70, 30, 80, 20 stock to bond one anymore, and instead stop breaking that portfolio into the stated spending that each portfolio position is intended for. We talked about this. Minimum dignity floor, aging reserve, and minimum dignity floor gets broken into two. Minimum dignity floor delay period, minimum dignity floor post-delay period. Aging reserve, guaranteed inheritance, a buffer, not in the same context we're talking with these buffered products, but a buffer or reserve position for the unexpected things that are definitely going to happen that you can't even foresee. Each of those positions are a separate investment strategy. And by having a see-through portfolio, and by doing the verb, the action, positioning, you will start to create your individual positions. And the last position left over, after all those other items are taken care of, delay period MDF, post-delay MDF, aging reserve, guaranteed inheritance, buffer, and quote-unquote other for people who have unique needs that don't fall into those categories, the dollars remaining is your fund number. And it's that fund number that then gets positioned into two separate positions, go-go and slow-go and no-go. We put those two together, although we have nothing against people keeping all three separate, Go-go position, slow-go position, no-go position. Those concepts of go-go, slow-go, no-go, which I do know I did not come up with. I do think I came up with how can I tell you or any financial advisor tell you what to do with your money before I know what your money needs to do for you. I think I came up with that, but I could be wrong. But go-go, slow-go, no-go, that is another Stein from Colorado in the 1970s came up with it. Um, Do you remember his name? I always ask you this. Is it George? No, it's not George. I think it's
2: it's Mark, but I'll look it up again. We we always have
3: to look it up. I I know his last name's Stein because I'm very friendly with some dude named Stein, but I can't remember who that is. Do you know who I'm talking about? I heard of that guy, too. Yeah, he's a really nice guy. Yeah. 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 Anyways, Chris will find the name of this particular Stein. We believe passionately in his approach, go-go, slow-go, no-go, but not for all of retirement. Just for fun. We think minimum dignity floor expenses don't go through a go-go, slow-go, no-go phase. And certainly aging and guaranteeing inheritance don't go through those phases. But fun spending, folks, you will have a go-go phase and eventually a slow-go. We are not doing nearly as much. And a no-go phase, we are not doing much at all, if anything. I mean, you're living, but you're not really consuming much of your wealth any longer on fun. So what we look for with that see-through portfolio, we get the position numbers from Chris's team. That's where I'm going with this. So we get what their minimum dignity floor delay period is, their uh, post-delay period, their aging reserve number. They're guaranteed inheritance. We start to get these numbers from Chris's team. Sometimes they have all the numbers for us. Sometimes they don't. And on the investment side, we have to work with clients to get the last few numbers nailed down. And then when we see on the investment side a delay period minimum dignity floor shortage and go-go fun spending... That's what triggers us into thinking a buffered product may be appropriate, with may being the operative word here. Why does that trigger, folks? Well, it triggers because in retirement, again, if you believe in my concept of the opposite, and one of the things when managing a portfolio in retirement that's the opposite, is cash flow. During the accumulation phase, you're just putting money in. But in a distribution phase, you're consuming your wealth. And as Chris rightly pointed out, few, if any, people have so much wealth they can live off of all their income from that wealth, never touch the principal, and cover all of their expenses, both minimum dignity floor and fun. We do run into people like that. We call them unicorns, but it's not because their assets are so big. It's because they have amazing, amazing pension benefits. And it's usually when the husband and wife were high earner, generally government employees with amazing government pensions. They're few and far between, but we do have Mm -hmm. unicorns. Mm -hmm. So follow again, folks, the concept of what we're trying to do here rather than one big portfolio. And I don't know where you would use a buffered product in a big portfolio. I suppose an accumulation advisor could figure that out for me, but it's, it's nothing that I ever thought of using because to me in the accumulation phase, you're not spending yet. You're not taking negative distributions. I want as much growth as possible. Maybe in a transition portfolio where you're getting ready to move into retirement, These products might be used. I'll I'll concede that. But I'm talking here a pure distribution portfolio. I'm not concerned anymore with the dogmatic approach of an investment policy statement that says I will have 60% in equities, 40% in bonds. And of my equities, 12% will be large cap growth. uh, 3% will be emerging market stocks. And you can get accumulation investment advisors giving such extreme investment policy statements as that. And that might work well during an accumulation phase. It fails miserably in a distribution phase. And that's because when I can look at a client's portfolio and and we've used 2.8 million in the past, I know that got us into trouble. Let's just use that again in this example, Chris. If I'm helping someone manage assets now, And I see a $2.8 million portfolio. I need to literally see through that portfolio. I need to see in it. And what are those dollars designed to do? I get that from the numbers in Chris. And when I see him showing me a delay period MDF shortage and a go go shortage, those folks represent negative cash flows, immediate. Negative cash flows, long-term minimum dignity floor shortage, or what we call post-delay shortage, that may not be needed for 10, 12, 15 more years. Aging reserve hopefully isn't going to be needed for well into retirement. Guaranteed inheritance, that's only after you die. Again, I'm hoping that's a very long time into the future. Even slow-go and no-go, long time into the future. But when I see Chris tell me there is a delay period MDF shortage of X amount of dollars and a fund number of X. And then, of course, the client breaks the fund into go-go and slow-go and no-go. So when I see the go-go fund number, those two numbers in my mind, from an investment standpoint, folks, represent negative cash flows the delay period MDF is going to be consumed And I'll have Chris in a minute explain why he can get so accurate. We talked about this before, but it's appropriate today, how he can get so accurate numbers for me on the investment side where I can actually be shown by Chris, here's what they need in year one, here's what we expect them to need in year two, here's what they expect to need in year three, and he can walk me through the entire delay period with an actual dollar amount that gives us as we create a spending ladder, and we create it with uh, items that will mature. Uh, whether it's a a fully liquid um, ETF tied to say uh, sh- ultra short term bonds, whether it's specific T bills, one that matures in two years, three years, four years, whether it's MIGA annuities that mature in three years, four years, or five years. We can get really specific numbers from Chris that he'll explain to you in a minute. But don't lose sight of the fact that the idea is for you to see into your portfolio during the delay period, which Chris will define in a second. And those dollars represent negative cash flows. It's the opposite. It is money that's going to be coming out. So we have to give those from an investment standpoint. What we call principle protected, principle protected risk capacity. That is key. And delay period MDF dollars are part of that. So we have to protect those dollars, Principal protected risk capacity. Same thing with GOGO. And this I'm going to give Chris credit for. When he started working with me and I started sharing with him my idea of retirement and my approach to it and how I despised a safe withdrawal rate and a Monte Carlo projection, Chris rightly pointed out he didn't care for Monte Carlo either. But he didn't care for it because he said it pays that traditional retirement planning and if I explain this wrong, Chris, please chime in. I don't want to attribute something to you that if I misunderstood, but he always shared with me, at least I think he did, that he didn't like it because it always concentrated too much on running out of money and, and dying with nothing. But no one is paying attention with dying with too much and not spending enough. And that lent that belief of his that he shared with me helped formulate our approach as we went forward. Fun number never existed when I first hired Chris. But after working with him and realizing that, yes, that too is correct, it's not all about running out of money, running out of money, running out of money, it's not spending enough. I had always identified. Minimum dignity floor and prioritized that with secure income. But I never felt the same need for fun. That evolved. So now when we see fun number, Chris and I place an undue emphasis on that and especially go-go. We want you to die with no go-go money. You can die with slow-go and no-go But I want you to enjoy your go-go phase. And we want to help you look into that hypothetical 2.8 million in my example here. And identify, see through the spending on minimum dignity floor, aging, inheritance, buffers, and reserves. Get that cloudiness out of the way so you can see fun. And when you identify fun, we work with you to identify the go-go percent of that fund number and it's that go-go that we also ascribe a principal protected risk tolerance because on go-go spending it's emotional on minimum dignity for a delay period it's sequence of return risk but there are two risks we are trying to manage A lot of advisors take this attitude, Chris, with fun. Well, if the market's down, you just don't have to spend. It's discretionary. You don't have to spend that money. I cringe when I hear that because I'm a stroke survivor. I should not be alive. Everyone knows that. And if I am alive, I should be paralyzed to some degree. It wouldn't be fully, but I should not be able to go out Jogging or jolking a half jog, half walk. I shouldn't be hiking, hunting, fishing, gardening, at least to the way that I still am. I came very close to being the other guy. And that can happen at any time. So I'm loathe when I hear, oh, the market in 2022 was down, 2023, you got to cut your fund spending. Don't spend on discretionary items. I know I told you you could take 4% out. No, no, we're going to cut that to 2%. You got to cut your fund spending. That ticks me off because you don't know if you'll even be around next year or the year after or the year after. And go, go, we just want you to feel comfortable spending on the fun, And I can't do that. If you look at your fund reserve and you're like, oh my God, my fund reserve is down 30%. I know Jim told me I can spend it, but now I'm going to have to sell something that's down 30% and you freak out. And we as investment advisors would freak out too, because we don't want you selling something that's down 30% on a distribution. So I have to give GoGo Fund money the same protection we give minimum dignity floor delay period. Okay, I'm done. Chris is just going to explain how he can come up with some pretty good numbers here, especially how you can come up and really allow us to structure a spending ladder on minimum dignity for a delay period. And we can structure it with a one-year T-bill or a one-year brokered CD, a two-year CD, maybe a three-year T-bill, a four-year MIGA. And if people have a long enough delay period, which he'll explain in a minute what that is, if it's long enough, For dollars that we can clearly articulate to a client, they're not going to need for seven or more years. We generally use these buffered products in the delay period MDF. Why? I have much better upside potential with those. And with a 20 or 30% downside buffer, we feel with seven years till needing it, a significant drop in the market may be fully wiped out by the buffer or greatly, greatly reduced by the buffer, making us feel much more certain in the stated time period we can recoup that loss. Okay, Chris, take over.
2: So a uh, couple things. The um, When Jim talks about principal protection for the delay period, We wanna recognize, and some of you out there may already be thinking this, that delay periods come in all different sizes. So the delay period is defined as uh, the retirement date, up until all of your secure income is turned on, so you're likely to have greater distributions from your portfolio. Because you're making up for the fact that all of your income has not turned on yet. And for most people, that's going to mean until one of the couple is age 70. And why 70? Well, that's because a lot of folks um, enjoy or, or value the longevity protection that having the largest Social Security benefit you can create by delaying to 70 at least for generally the higher wage earner because it's that social security benefit that will be around while both of you are around if you're a couple. And then that benefit and that benefit alone will be con- will be continuing when the first of you passes. So to kind of mitigate or to lessen the degree of the drop in your secure income, we like to encourage the higher wage earner uh, to delay to 70. So for most people, we can... You know, we can just kind of state it as the delay period is from retirement up until age 70 uh, when the, you know, the last person uh, in the household turns on their Social Security. So that can be a short period. It can be if you retire at 65, that's only five years. There's, um, you know, not a whole lot of time there. You're going to treat that. We're going to view that differently than someone who retires in, at 58, right? Now we've got a 12-year Period, and that's why you know. In the first example I gave, uh, if it's only five years, we're probably not talking buffered in any of this. That's a short enough period of time. We're talking positioning, cash, and principal protection for that five-year period. There just isn't enough time to be worrying about uh, retaining upside potential. It's all about protecting the downside because this spending is about to happen. It's where it's on the horizon. We can see it. 12 years out, you might fall into the category that Jim described, where we've got you know a long delay period, and so it would be inappropriate to use fully 100% principal protection because we'd give be giving up, in our opinion, sometimes a, a, too much upside potential, and that's where these buffered products uh, can at least be considered. Not that everyone will like them or want to do it that way, but that's where they kind of fit in the delay period. Where we can come up with the number for the needs is we spend a lot of time gathering tons of information from clients about what their spending behavior is, and we identify very clearly what the minimum dignity floor expenses are in any given year, uh, factoring in the transition from, you know, pre-65 to post-65 transition onto Medicare. Uh, we build in assumptions for expenses that Maybe not. they don't happen every year, so people tend to forget about them when they put them into a budget. We try to make sure we're considering everything uh, possible and adding little cushions here or there. So we come up with a uh, what we believe to be a very reasonable estimate for what your minimum dignity floor expenses are moving forward. And it's that data that can feed right into the when is this needed, and, and uh, we already know it's super important covering the minimum dignity floor. And that allows uh Jim and his team to kind of build the spending ladder, right? Build the what is gonna supply the resources for that spending, uh because we've got a pretty clear picture of when, you know, how much is needed and when. So that's what feeds back into uh into Jim. The last thing I'll say is it's Michael Stein, not Mark Stein. I knew it was an M. Michael Stein uh, the book um, where he put forth this idea of go-go, slow-go, no-go was a book called The Prosperous Retirement, uh, published in 1998. Um, Michael unfortunately passed away in 2016, so he's no longer with us. Otherwise, I can guarantee you we would have tried to get him on the show, but uh, yeah, he was from Colorado, ironically, where we are, but uh that didn't really guide our attraction to it. It was all about the the concept of it really just resonated with the way we approach retirement planning. So that's why we use those terms all the time. That's your cue.
3: That was. I was wondering if that was my cue. Uh, go to GoGo, though.
2: <laughs> oh, the GoGo spending. Yeah. Yes, so the,
3: the GoGo. Because you, you did so, a good job he did a very good job the, the the one thing that that i will add what what chris literally feeds to us though because he gets the data out of his his analysis and all you do it yourself is with your spreadsheets you probably have this data as well if you identify food utilities transportation housing and health care uh, he gives us the dollar amounts already inflation adjusted when we manage if we're doing it for people when we manage delay period MDF shortages, Chris gives me the already inflation adjusted dollars that they're gonna need, um, whether it's year one, two, three, four and five, or is the other one all the way up to 12 years. So I have it mapped out. Now, as clients update their analysis on a regular basis, those numbers may change obviously, but that allows us on the investment side and we put exact dollars in. We do not discount down is what I'm getting at. In order to build a little extra protection, we put the inflation adjusted spending dollars already. So uh, out of the 2.8 million, if we say it's going to take 600,000, that's the actual dollars adjusted for inflation that you are likely to spend. And that way, any growth on those dollars, because in principle protected, especially years ago when I was doing this and principal protected paid nothing, how could we discount down and assume a one, one and a half percent growth rate up? So we just use pure inflation adjusted dollars already. But now to us, where principal protection is paying five to six percent with uh, CD's, brokerage CD's and MIGAs, and 4 or 5% with treasury bills and tips, you can get that added on. And to me, it's just another layer of protection yeah, in case the spending is higher.
2: Yeah, it's really more uh, kind of a, an implied inflation protection, because the reason why those rates are higher is because inflation is higher. And so that adds a little buffer for inflation above and beyond what we might have used in the base retirement planning projection. So, I, in you know, in as they told me that's how they were approaching this, I was fully in support of them treating these numbers at what I would call face value or nominal value without discounting them, make you know, kind of relying then on getting a return. Uh, instead, a return is an extra buffer, if you will, extra insulation from. Uh, are you know the projections being off from the assumptions and they go hand in hand it's protecting against something very specific when you have this situation those higher interest rates on principal protection are are due simply to inflation uh, inflationary pressures so it gives you a little extra inflation uh, protection on the minimum digging floor expenses
3: and we admit it lowers your fund number if any Do it yourself or out there has programmed your own spreadsheet you could see the more money you put in minimum daily floor delay period the smaller your fund number gets on the spreadsheet we use it's it's rock it's not rocket science it works perfectly it's coming from fun we recognize that but we place minimum dignity floor ahead of fun and that allows us to sit in there and identify expenses seven years or more we will sit and chat with a client about a buffered product. We'll make sure they understand it. They feel comfortable. Some do. Some don't. It's not for everybody. Don't get us wrong on that. And that's how you should approach this. If you, you he wanted to know how we use and this is how we use them, you might come up with your own. But it's at that point where this product may be appropriate because it has upside potential Right now, far higher than what we can get on true principal protected, brokered CDs, T-bills, tips, things of that structure, MIGAs. We have potential to get significantly more. And we fully agree. And we tell people they don't have to do that because these are dollars that are subtracted out and they're earmarked and you've got them. If you don't want to take any investment risk, you don't have to. But people also understand if they can walk away from their delay period MDF with extra dollars, that's extra dollars they can put towards their delay period, post-delay period MDF shortage, or dollars that they can put in their buffer for the older them, or dollars that they can move into the fund number. We let people decide what to do if there's any extra dollars in there. We don't recommend they put all the money into something different Uh, and that's because of the very nature of minimum dignity floor funding we do want some dollars remaining in that minimum dignity floor pool even when secure income is turned on but sometimes there'll be so much extra dollars that the clients can make a decision what to do with it and it's all by design because we give preference to minimum dignity floor Now, fun number is a little different when Chris gives us that number, isn't it?
2: Yeah, so the fun number kind of is, it's not the same for everyone as far as the approach to dealing with the fun number. Some people have a very clear vision of what their fun, uh, what, what fun they would like to have. And so they just proactively share that with us. And then we actually have a nice uh, budget, you know, to fund the things that they've identified they want to do. And those cash flows that are expected during that critical go-go period, which is a lot of times coinciding directly with the delay period, um, gives those additional numbers for Jim to position assets in a way to protect that go-go spending because it's that go-go spending that is the most important fund to protect not fun later, fun more now. And that's because you just never know how you know, how much of your go go period you're gonna be able to exploit. And the biggest regrets people tend to have later in retirement is they didn't go do the things that they hope they do, maybe oftentimes out of fear. And then it ends up things are fine and they could have done it. And now they've got these big regrets. So we try to really emphasize protecting that. And, and so that's one way we can come up with this go-go spending that would feed into the proper positioning that may very well involve a a buffered product as part of that, depending on the length of the, the go-go period. But uh, the other way is, you know, people have some idea of what they want to have, but they haven't formed their vision of fun yet because they didn't know what was possible. And that's really, it's those folks where we really came up with this concept of the fun number is be able to feed back to them this. Here you go. Now, now come up with your vision. These are the dollars that you have to spend. And uh, it's those folks who take it, the number that direction uh, that we encourage to um you know, help help us because they have to share certain things with us to get to this fund number, but then take a pretty high percentage of that, 65, 70% of that is, is pretty common, and dedicate it to the go-go spending. And so that means the dollars for fun over your lifetime, about 70% of that pool, we're going to position so that you can spend it comf- confidently during that go-go period. And, you know, that would play a part. Then, you know, some, depending on the length of the go-go period, that's going to matter as to how it would be properly uh, positioned. But, um, you know, you can see that we we don't just treat the minimum dignity floor with an eye for protection. We're also leaning hard into protecting that go-go spending as well.
3: Exactly. And it's for the reason that we shared with you. We think traditional retirement planning especially a safe withdrawal rate probability statistic projection unnecessarily constrains spending on fun early in retirement when you need to do your fun because you don't know when something will change so how does that tie into the buffered product in the go-go phase well let's just say that the the go-go out of the 2.8 million Let's just say the uh, fund number came to 1.2 million, and they want to spend 800 thousand in go go and 400 thousand in slow go and no go. Just walking you through that. What would we do there with that 800 thousand, and where does a potential buffered product, whether it's the insurance product or the brokered product, fit in? The first thing we do, and the first thing you have to understand, we don't limit our clients to a stated withdrawal amount on fund. Spend your 800,000 as fast as you want. And I jokingly, when I did this, when I was doing the deliveries of the plans, I would jokingly say, and, and if anyone's listening who had a plan delivered, you probably remember me saying something to the effect of, your go-go fund number is $800,000. You can spend it as fast or as slow as you want. You can spend it in one day if you want or one year. It'll be a hell of a good year. But it's totally up to you if you want to do it. And people would laugh. No one's going to spend $800,000 in a year if that's their entire go-go budget. But in theory, that's what you could do. In practice, it's not what you're going to do. So where we begin on the investment side. So as you guys are trying to figure this out on your own, you do-it-yourselfers. Or if you're working with a financial advisor. And you're trying to give that financial advisor, investment advisor rather, a uh, direction on how to invest your assets. One of the first things we ask people is in a perfect year, during your go-go phase, not in your 70s and 80s, in your slow go and no go. And your early 70s could still be go-go, although clients have anecdotally shared with us, usually around 73 to 75, they're slowing down. But... During the go-go phase, we ask people not what you're going to spend every single year. That's impossible to figure out. We ask them one simple question. In a perfect world, in your go-go phase, what could you conceivably see as being the maximum amount of money you could spend in any given year? Not every year. We are not looking for a yearly budget. I just want to know. Some people, Chris, just will tell us, that there's no way we're going to spend more than 30000 on fund. Never. Just I just don't see it. And others, we had one recent, 175000 That was what they felt in the go-go phase. They could conceivably, in the perfect world, see them spending in a particular year. Not every year, but in that one year where they're just living it up. Why do we ask that? because we don't limit people to a stated dollar amount every year we would theoretically chris have to keep all eight hundred thousand fully liquid because the person might want it correct
2: yeah you never the- theoretically yeah. mm-hmm.
3: theoretically so from an investment standpoint especially years ago folks when cash wasn't paying anything how could I tell someone to keep $800,000 in a cash-like asset just in case you decide to spend it on fun? In theory, they could spend it all in one year, but in practicality they don't. But I never know. Are they going to call me and ask for 20,000 and then 3 weeks later ask me for another 5 and then 6 months after that ask me for another 30 because now they want to give some money to their grandchild? I have to have liquidity. How can I have liquidity in an investment? If they could need an investment at any time, I can't invest that. Sequence of return risk right there says you can't do that. And in a lot of these principal protected products, especially if you adopt the insurance. Principal protected products, they're going to have penalty periods where you can't get your money without paying a significant penalty. So even though with an insurance product, you might not suffer a market loss, you will have to pay a penalty to get your own money. So it was creating this conundrum where I wanted principal protection, but full liquidity. I wanted my cake and I wanted to be able to eat it too. And it can't be done. So I took this approach. It works for us and our clients. You can decide what you want to do. Let's just talk about the person who told me 175,000 recently. Do you think we positioned their portfolio to have 175,000 every year maturing, totally liquid? No, because by their total admission, this is that one great go-go year. They don't know when it could happen, But if it did happen, they don't see them spending more than one hundred seventy-five. dollars So we took that and doubled it to three hundred fifty, dollars And we put that in very liquid holdings. We put one in short term T-bills, $175,000 in short term T-bills. And we put another $175,000 in a one year brokered bank CD, excuse me, brokered CD, sold by a bank, but a brokered CD. And at the time, it was paying five point something. So I have their two years fairly liquid. That $175 in the liquid account tied to one to three month T-bills. We use an ETF. I'm not going to say which one. We use an ETF for that. Completely, totally liquid. Management fee of 0.09, I think it was. Or point, no, 0.1. It was either 0.09 or 0.1. Somewhere around there. Very, very minor management fee, but they're doing all the laddering of one to three month T bills, but I get the pleasure of complete liquidity whenever. So that's that. First 175, the next 175 is in a one-year C D. Then we start going out in year. So that covered the first year and the second year. So now I got to get the third year. So we start positioning maybe with. The team. I'm not going to get into the whole positioning we did for this person, but we might look at bills only direct. You know, we might buy a, a one year note or a two year note or a three year note or T bill, rather, whatever you want to call them. I always get confused on bills and notes. We can look at those. We can look at tips. We can look at MIGAs. And we start structuring this not with 175, 175, and 175. We look at their remaining go go money. Remember, there was $800,000 in my hypothetical example. They want liquidity of one seventy five in any given year. Well, with 800000 and let's just say their go-go phase was nine years, I'm making this up, there's not enough money there, Chris, to do 175000 for nine years because they're not saying they're going to spend one seventy five in any given year. They're just telling us they don't see them ever spending more than one seventy five, And they don't know if they ever would spend one seventy five. So the liquidity is is very fluid. So as our spending ladder begins to mature, we will look at the ETF and that maturing um, one year CD, and we will see how much money is left. We'll talk to the client, is 175 still your liquidity goal? If not, generally, they lower it as time goes on. Maybe they, in two years, so the beginning of year three, they, they lower it to, to 125. Well, we may already have 125 folks remaining between those two pools. So we can start to position that. The other positions, a three-year, say, uh, MIGA that's maturing and a, a five-year TIP that's maturing, we start to do the same things. But the Buffett products come in when we can get people with a go-go phase of about seven years or more. That's where we start to say to them, these go-go dollars. And some people might feel comfortable using a number less than seven. Some people may feel comfortable only using a number more than seven. We kind of key in on seven. Doesn't mean that's what you're going to do. But if we see go-go phases much longer than seven, or if a client overrides our cautious approach and says, I have a five-year go-go phase, but I think that fifth year I'm comfortable with a buffered product, we're okay with that as well, folks. But the buffered product gives us the ability to earn better returns But if it's money that we feel they're not going to need for go-go for seven years or more, it allows us to take that extra um, risk, if you will, that the buffered product gives us. Because it's not fully principal protected risk tolerance, excuse me, risk capacity. Because they could lose outside of the buffer, and we acknowledge that. But we feel with a seven-year hold the chances of recouping those losses is far greater. And let's talk about another reason we do this. Unlike Chris's number that he gives us for the delay period MDF, these numbers of fun are not inflation adjusted. This is the nominal numbers you have for fun. So each year inflation is reducing your fund so we track the cpi and we're going to work on changing how we track it i haven't talked to you yet about chris but i talked to jacob and uh not andrew yet but you two will be made aware of what jacob and i are doing and maybe i'll share on the podcast what we're doing but we're looking differently at cpi looking at some of the components and trying to come up with a better targeted return for go-go dollars Right now, we have it at 4.3%, <clears throat> and it was tied to the uh, recreation component of CPI, which has since been lowered even more than 43 and it's just, I'm going to be looking at it a little bit differently, but for right now, we're sticking with two quarters ago, I think it was, where the government was saying CPI tied to recreation is 43 That right now still remains our targeted rate of return. And what we're trying to do is structure this spending ladder with complete liquidity. That's what makes this difficult. But trying to structure a spending ladder with not necessarily complete, I misspoke, with adequate liquidity Mm -hmm. to cover the 175 at any time. But have it have the ability to at least keep pace with 4.3. Because that allows us to help remove some of the inflation risk that principal protected risk capacity carries. Well, having some dollars in an investment that gives a buffer but not complete principal protection, but gives those dollars the potential to get a 12, 15, or 18% return in any given year, goes a long way towards making the entire go-go allocation earning 4.3%. Does that now make sense, Chris, where we sometimes view these?
2: Yeah, I think so. It's again, it's, you know, very specific cases where the, the time horizon matches up with the, uh, importance of covering the need. Um, and you know, it's kind of about balance. It's not, it's not like, um, before when we talked about principal protection, it kind of, if you'll limit your world to just that or, risky assets, it was quite a shift when you went from principal protection to taking on full risk, you know, and then having to mitigate the risk by an asset allocation. Here, there's like this in-between where you add a bit risk, you expose yourself to a little more risk, but it's buffered, so it's limited, not eliminated, but it's limited, Uh, but it opens up the door to more investment return potential on it. As the kind of bridge between the principal protection and then the the longer longer term uh, time horizon, uh, where we would position things in a more traditional risk based portfolio. So, um, yeah, I think it's a, okay, perfect, a, a valid use I, I, of the, in those cases.
3: I think we're done then. I think mm-hmm. we captured where and how we try to structure these, and hopefully convey to listeners that it is a very. Narrow spot and use. We talk about them because we're retirement planners. You probably don't hear accumulation advisors or investment shows talking about them because they're not about that. They're about getting you as much on the upside. To them, a success is losing as much as the market loses. And then on the upside, success for them is, is earning more. That's not a goal of a retirement portfolio. It's the opposite. And instead, we have to pay attention to principal protection from an emotional standpoint and a sequence of risk standpoint, but also from an inflationary standpoint. And that's why we want to come up with as accurate a number as we can for the targeted rate of return of a positioned go-go portfolio, because that becomes the benchmark for that portfolio. There's no guarantee we're going to get the inflation rate, but that's our aim. And that's what we try to do, and that's where a buffered product fits in. So next week, we will get more into then the differences between the brokered buffered products or exchange traded funds and UITs that are regulated under the 1940 Investment Advisors Act as investments and the insurance buffered products that do offer full protection but they are an insurance product and they work differently. That's the fixed indexed annuities. And I think I will add on to that Rylas, because the, the agents and, and brokers are selling Rylas big time now. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about registered index linked annuities, the new, the new toy in the annuity market, which kind of meld, Chris, the benefits of a fixed indexed annuity with some of the investment volatility of a variable annuity. So you'll see with Arila as well um, how they work, but they are a buffered product because they do offer some downside protection. A fixed indexed annuity, they offer a zero floor. There's, there's the market can lose as much, or the reference index. In this case, it was the S and P, if you remember. But the reference index can lose as much as it wants. But in a fixed index annuity, zero is your hero, as the industry likes to say. But in a RILA, you have a floor, you got a buffer, but much, much higher upside. So the the RILA is the annuity version, or the marriage of a fixed index annuity with a variable annuity got together and they had a baby and that baby is called a Ryla. <laughs> nice. Well, well I mean that's what it is. Yeah. It's it's literally it's 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 the Ryla is the baby. Okay. I, I think I'd name my kid something different than Ryla, that but it could be worse. Ryla is the baby of a variable annuity and a fixed index annuity. Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. Well we can all look forward to that next week. So uh, thanks everybody for Tuning in, although you don't really tune a podcast, but you know what I mean. The the age group we're talking to knows what tuning in means, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So, uh, if
3: you don't um, know what Chris meant, you are yeah. listening to the wrong podcast. Probably, it's, yeah,
2: yeah, not age so, appropriate for you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, uh, appreciate everybody listening, and we'll be be back with you next week with that uh, brand new show that Jim just described.
1: You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now, you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Sonnier and Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jimhelps.com or call 970-530-0556.
0: is offered through jim Solnier and associates llc a registered investment advisor